Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, this is a 30-second commercial, and I'm going to throw a lot of numbers at you, but please stay with me. In just 15 minutes, you could save 15% or more on car insurance. This company has been offering great rates and great service for over 75 years, and anytime you need help, you can speak to one of their trained specialists 24-7. The company is Geico. Go to geico.com today. Sorry for all the numbers, and in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, I'm out of time. Now, Podcast One brings you Spike's Car Radio. A downloadable Cars and Coffee, hosted by writer, comedian, and automotive enthusiast, Spike Ferriston. Now, here's Spike. Spike's Car Radio, special Porsche-themed episode. Uh, today, I'm going to travel you all the way to, uh, to Hollywood, to the Peterson Auto Museum, where a few weeks ago, they had an all-Euro cruise-in. That's their fun way of saying there was a car show there with a lot of cool Porsches and German cars. And uh, I was lucky enough to host a panel on outlaw Porsches and, and, and the SoCal hot rodding culture um, back from the 60s and how it influenced outlaw Porsches. Um, on that panel, Bruce Canepa, Bruce Meyer, Dave Buzaglu from TRE Motorsports, Freeman Thomas, the original founder of the R Group, um, Patrick Long, Rod Emery, and, of course, me, your favorite Porsche dude. And guess what? Uh, I, I know not all of you can travel to L.A. every weekend for all the Porsche events. So I recorded it for you, and here it is for you to enjoy. Congratulations on getting away from your families on a Sunday. I'm impressed that we're sold out here. Um, and I'm excited to uh, host this panel because... Um, I, I think, uh, I'm not sure I know as much as the guys who are coming up here, and I have so many questions for them, and I think we're going to learn a lot about um, Southern California racing culture, um, hot rod culture, racing up on Mulholland, and all of the elements that converged in the old days with the, with the Porsche crowd to create the R Group, um, the outlaw cars that we know now, and uh, this entire subculture that's suddenly gaining acceptance at least in the world of Porsche, where preservation used to be the thing, and now these outlaw cars are showing up, and, and suddenly we all love them. So um, uh, thank you for the Peterson for doing this. Uh, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. We have a panel of eight guys who are, uh, I think they cover pretty much everything, and uh, let's just get them up here because uh, we're going to run out of time before we know it. Um, Marco Gerasi's coming up here. He's owner and operator of TLG Auto in North Hollywood. Come on, Marco. Just take that end seat right there, Marco, from TRE Motorsports. He's worked on my cars. He does an excellent job with these outlaw cars. Dave Buzaglu. Come on, Dave. Also prominent R Group member. Our sponsor today from BBI Autosport. Berisha, thank you for sponsoring us. He's an incredible motor builder. I, I want to ask you about that 1,500 horsepower 
thing that you're doing because I drove Bissimoto's 800 horsepower car and that thing is insane. I can't imagine 1500 horsepower. From Canapa Motorsport, Bruce Canapa, a legit racer, sells incredible cars. I was on your site for three hours last night before my wife made me come to bed. Um, I love this next guy. Uh, he's he's uh, you know an incredible car designer with great stories, and he's the co-founder of the R Group, Freeman Thomas. Beautiful cars. A driver we love. Uh, he he's got a little car show called Luftikult. Have you ever heard of that? Patrick Long. Star in its own right. Thank Patrick. You know, if it weren't for my next guest and his buddy Robert Peterson buying this former department store right here, uh, we wouldn't have this lovely museum. He's, uh, he's the man, Bruce Meyer, a picture on the Southern California car scene and historian. And the guy uh, who's got, I, I, I think his family coined the word outlaw, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, he's just got these cars locked up right now. The stuff he's building is just incredible. Rod Emery. Owner and proprietor of Instagram. Welcome, fellas, to the panel. One of these lovely bachelors will go home with one of you ladies out there today. No, I just know. And, and guys, you know, I'm going to ask questions. Feel free to make this conversational and chime in. Again, you know, we all want to we want to learn about <clears throat> this connection, and there's a, a lot to cover. And I, I thought we would start with you, Rod, because. Really, it's your family that coins the uh, phrase outlaw, and your grandfather that kind of began it all, right? Fill us in and paint that picture for us and how far it goes back. Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, this is a great group and uh, really honored to be up here with all these guys. You know, I think that really all of us are here because of some of the, the early hot rodders that uh, really originated right here in Southern California. Um, you know, you had guys like John Von Neumann and, um, you know, had competition motors and, uh, uh, you know, all the Porsche dealerships that were around here, Bossick Polak, and, and then you had this whole hot rod culture of guys in the 40s and 50s, and my grandfather was one of those guys. He uh, had a Shop Valley custom shop in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s in North Hollywood. He was one of the pioneers of channeling and sectioning, uh, you know, old custom cars. He got into the Porsche world in 1962, and... That's, for me, where uh, I think the Porsche stuff really got into, you know, our bloodline. Uh, my dad started uh, at uh, Chick Iverson Volkswagen Porsche in Newport Beach. You know, back in the 50s and 60s when these cars were new coming, you know, into the United States, uh, people were looking at them not really as, as just transportation, but as something they could just really hot rod out. And, and uh, guys like Dean Jeffries, which was uh, one of the early customizers in uh, North Hollywood, he took a 57 Carrera. And uh, to, to my knowledge, it's really the first custom 356. He took a, a 57 Carrera, you know, an early 356 Carrera and, you know, changed the nose and changed the, the rear deck lid and uh, really made a pretty iconic, uh, you know, hot rod 356. And, you know, the purists always, you know, kind of uh, hated the, you know, the, the fact that there were people out there hot rodding these cars out. But uh, the truth is, you know, Porsche wanted to build cars that people could love and enjoy. And, and to just answer your question real quick here, um, you know, the reason that, that we get um, kind of credit for coining the term outlaw was because when I was 14 years old, I built my first 356, which was a 53 coupe, 
and went to a PCA event, a Porsche Club of America event with my father, and uh, there was no class for us. There was nowhere for us to show our car. <laughs> and um, so my dad and I um, approached uh, a friend of ours, James Cannon, who's actually Freeman's brother-in-law, and uh, is a jeweler, and we said, hey, will you make this little badge for us uh, that we can put on the back of our cars that said 356 Outlaws uh, with this uh, German Falcon, the, the, the back of a, a five-mark coin. And uh, that was something that my dad and I have always put on our cars, but also gifted to people like Bada out here in the crowd that uh, kind of followed that same spirit of, you know, hey, even if the purists don't like us, we love these cars. We're going to, you know, do to them what we want. And that's how the term outlaw got associated with customized or hot-rodding Porsches. And how, how long did it take to get accepted by the Porsche community? Because well, I, I feel like the Porsche community is now turning towards you, and now suddenly the preservationists are on the outside. Well, I think the, kind of the, the passing of the torch was last weekend at Amelia Island when PCA uh, honored 356 Outlaws, and we were the honored cars at their works reunion wow, at Amelia Island. So, That's great. Um, there you go. That's awesome. So I, I think if you... I think if you stick with something long enough, sooner or later people will realize that maybe you aren't crazy or maybe you still are crazy. But, um, you know, it's just something that we've done for years uh, and so many before us did as well. But it's just now that the general public, the Porsche enthusiasts, everybody's really embracing it. And, um, you know, for me, it's just uh, it's a dream come true because it's kind of my, my family's work and my life's work is finally, you know, recognized. And there's so many other amazing builders that are doing the same thing. Some of these guys that are on this uh, this panel. So. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that, Bruce. I know you have uh, your family has about ten Porsches, and uh, you. Uh, how do you feel about preservation versus outlaw when you make choices? Because it seems like you don't go as far as some. Right. So, <laughs> um, growing up here in Southern California, and uh, Neil Emery was like the guy. And and one of the things with, I'm a hot rodder from birth. But Neil Emery used to peak the radiators of the 32 Fords, and that was one of his signatures. And so Valley Custom was like, like the holy grail of customizers. And I always enjoyed that, and, and, I, and I grew up with Dean Jeffries. So when he did that Porsche today, I mean, it's, it's real extreme. For my taste, I like to stay a little more traditional. Um, we, we're building a, a 92 911S outlaw at, at uh, TRE right now with a twin plug three liter in it but I just kind of like to I like to keep it towards what it might have looked like um, but you know adding a few little twists I, I did a a coupe about 25 years ago that's a little silver one and I put I shipped it to Chicago I've done route 66 and I probably have 15,000 miles just in in rallies and so forth but you know it fits right in in my wheelhouse the hot rod the outlaw and I was at Amelia Island I went to the most enormous works reunion, and I would say that without a doubt, 90% of the people were at the outlaw part because it's creativity. <laughs> I mean, how many gorgeous stock, you know, turbos and so forth can you see? But then when you see what what uh, Rod brings out and some of the other customizers bring out, that's where the interest is. That's when you could, where you can really express yourself and. and be a little different than the crowd. So right. I'm all for it and I love it. Um, well, Dave, I want to move down to you now because I want to talk about, um, well, you know, and I've been reading up on this. I'm fascinated about the racing that was going on in Mulholland. Um, you were one of those guys up there racing, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and 
you know, before McQueen, there was a, it ended at Skyline. There was a track up there, right? It ended at Skyline Drive. Where did it start up on Mulholland? Where's the racetrack? Well, the traditional route would uh, start at Coldwater and uh, <laughs> going east. And before Laurel Canyon, there was a residential area, which essentially started at Skyline Drive. So rather than uh, really anger the residents that lived in that area, people would turn around there and pretty much we were left alone till things really grew and got out of hand. Now there's, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours who said something about aircraft light to light up the racetrack, that you would steal aircraft lights or something. What, what is well, that I, story? I got twisted a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we discovered that there was a little accessory shop in Burbank that uh, was selling all sorts of little accessories. We walked in there one day and we saw these clear lens lamps and on the box, a General Electric aircraft. It's like, oh, this will fit in the high beam socket of the Datsun 510. <laughs> this will fit in the high beam socket of my Pontiac. You know? So that's what we did. We notched the uh, bezels to make them fit, and we had 100 watts of unadulterated pure sunshine. Wow. And, and, and so uh, take us through a race here. I want to talk about how you set the cars up, but like when you say you're racing, are you guys... You're not side by side, you're just racing for the quickest lap time or Typically run? what would happen is, is you'd choose a little race and you'd follow the guy in front of you. You wouldn't try to pass him uh, because the road is just too narrow and of course you're dealing with oncoming traffic and other <laughs> residents, uh, deer, and rabbits, etc. So if you kept up with him all the way down the hill to Skyline, you turn around, now you lead and if you lost him, then you won. Wow. And, and how would you set a car up? Because this, to me, is like the beginning of, of this outlaw, um, you know, our group Porsche thing, where you're, you're, you're building a car, it's a sport purpose car, but you're going to road race it. So what were you doing to these cars? Were, were they Porsches? The majority of the group up there were economy sedans and sports cars, you know, Austin Healey Sprites, a lot of Mini Coopers. Those were kings of the mountain for quite a while. Then we moved on to the Capris, which had a lot of torque, and uh, we ran race tires. They were 25 bucks a piece, brand new from Carroll Shelby, and we ran race tires all the time. The fine was something like 100 bucks if you got caught by the cops running uh, slicks, <laughs> but uh, it didn't, didn't uh, stop us from uh, going with the uh, racing blue streaks at the time. So that was a lot of fun. The uh, Porsches were a little bit few and far between. You know, at the beginning, there were some speedsters and some cabs. You know, 356 cabs had come through there, ripping through. But for the most part, it was more the economy cars. And of course, you had what we call the rich kids from Beverly Hills. They had their XKEs or the later Corvette, which never did very well. But uh, anyway, um, my first big influence in Porsche was a really nice guy named Scott, and he had gotten a blue metallic 911S, you know, for his birthday. And he came up there, and he was wise. He didn't want to race much. He just wanted to tootle around. But the car really was quite an impression on me. So uh, when it was time to get a Porsche, you know, I was able to find one and help put it together with the uh, shop owner over on Ventura Boulevard. And uh, I started playing around up there. I discovered uh, why you must respect Porsches when it comes to turns. Uh, yeah, you never ever let off in the middle of a turn or over a hill. So uh, ended up doing a tank slapper back and forth, but fortunately nothing bad came of it. And uh, from then on, I ramped up to learn how to drive it properly. Wow. 
And, and, and these races, again, it's like you're, I didn't know you were part of the Fast and Furious cast up there. They began, when did they start? Like after dark? Did they go all night? Were they organized? There was nothing really organized. It essentially just hung out. Uh, we had the stoners that would typically smoke pot in the grandstand area. <laughs> reefers? They were smoking reefers? <laughs> reefers. Okay. And uh, up on Bulbont, we had the guys that tended to tipple a little bit, you know, with a little bit of booze, but not much. That was frowned upon. We really wanted to show car control. Um, and the group on Beaumont, we would go to slaloms all the time on, you know, weekends. We would start in the evening, you know, typically you'd go out on, with your date, what have you, you'd go drop her off and go rushing up to Mulholland to meet the guys to go play around. So that's what we would do. And some, some girls also joined in, you know, there was a gal in the 240Z, another one in the 510, another one in the Volvo. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a big social gathering. It was safe at the time. We'd stay up there two, three in the morning. Uh, we'd come down the hill for a while to go to Denny's or Dupar's or and know, no police, no police later. at all. There was very little police at first. Uh, then they had so many people coming up because they chase people off of cruising Van Nuys Boulevard. Mm -hmm. So they'd all come up in Mulholland. So it started getting pretty rowdy where they're throwing beer bottles at residents that were driving by. <laughs> so that had the uh, intended consequences of a visit by black and whites. There you go. So it came to a somewhat of a halt when uh, they did a pair of what they called the big bust. So uh, we were fortunate. We were up there one evening on Beaumont, and there was probably about 50, 60 cars in the grandstand area, and they're all having a ruckus of a time and everything, and a police car goes cruising by really slowly and doesn't stop. So something, just hair on the back of my neck, stood up a little bit, and I said, you know, guys, that's not a good sign. Usually they stop, they tell us to get the heck out of here. So we left, and not more than 20 minutes after we left, they closed off both sides of Mulholland and towed away a whole bunch of cars and arrested a bunch of people. And that was it, right. It was shut was down it. formally in the 80s. Yeah, it right. was. And, uh, the road has been in disrepair for quite a number of years, so your suspension better be soft. Uh, you when you know the road, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and of course, you always have to maintain safety from the standpoint of oncoming cars. It's not your road, it's, it's a public road. So from that standpoint, it's fine, but... Uh, Did any, now let me just ask you, anybody else on the Panaho, any of you guys, were you up there racing, Bruce? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's his story, and he's sticking to it. All right. Let's uh, let's segue into or our. As Patrick said, maybe. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're too young. Freeman is uh, credited with co-founding the R Group uh, with uh, Chris Werges, right? And and that whole group is founded on a single car. Was it? It was a, a '69 911 that he had hot rodded. Tell us the story of how this group was founded and why. Yeah, this is on. Hello. Uh, so um, you know, back in the the late uh, '90s, um, uh, Chris and his brothers uh, were interviewed by Excellence Magazine, and they were all in a great feature in there. And um, there were a lot of us down in SoCal that uh, had cars, and we were also kind of looking at everything from the sports purpose, and really trying to make the cars, uh, you know, you know, from a performance standpoint, the way they were back in the '60s and the '70s, the early 911s. And so um, I gave um, Chris. I, I gave Just hand him another mic. That's fine. There you go. Yeah, I had to um, 
I, I went ahead and called up Chris. I found his number through, I think it was Pete Stout, and, and uh, got his number. And we were on the phone probably for hours, you know, talking about this culture that was going on. And in the end, we decided, you know, why don't we group together and we'll create this, this group. And we, we experimented around with names and words and so forth. And we came up with the name R Grupa. And, you know, and, and I think that the, the group, none of us feel as though we invented this culture. It's really what we want to do is create a home for this culture. It was, the, you know, things what Dave was talking about back in the 60s and in the 70s and, and with, um, with the outlaws, with Gary and, and Rod, you know. And, uh, but what we wanted to do was, was uh, get together with all of this stuff. And so we ended up using the Porsche Sports Purpose uh, Manual as kind of the, the Bible for what this was. And then part of it was also that uh, there was this SoCal hot rod culture uh, that just couldn't leave well enough alone. And uh, and then, of course, there was Steve McQueen, you know, movie Lamont. You know, how many of us were the only ones in the drive-in theater watching Lamont, right? So, and... Of course, I grew up in um, Southern California, and I was Jeff, Jeff Swartz's neighbor, 1968. And uh, Jeff uh, actually kind of infected me with this whole thing because his dad had a 901, and, and that 901, by 1968, the engine, the original engine was gone. It was built to 911S. It had a, a, a used 911S engine in it, built by a guy named Edgar. Yep. Um, 911R wheels, lowered, sport seats, and at that point, the look, the stance, the sound, the feel, um, it was sort of there. And um, every once in a while you'll see, and it was a rare sight in those days to see, you know, a 911 or a modified 911. And so when I talked, started talking with Chris, I think this was an idea that if we could, and this is kind of really before internet really started getting used and we were using snail mail and photos and stuff like that. And um, so we ended up doing this first meet down Southern California and, um, and we all came together. And we even had, um, we, Jeff came there with, you brought your, your 964 rally car, I think, to that, right? And what was the name of the park? It was uh, um, uh, Fullerton. Muckenthaler, yeah, and I see a lot of lot of people that were there on that first time, and we knew that that magic had just started. That seat was gone, and we knew also that this thing was on the fringes as well because uh, these cars weren't really welcome on the roads because a lot of these cars were loud. They, they were running full 911R exhaust systems, 46 <laughs> millimeter Webers, open velocity stacks. Um, center fill, you know, and that time it was so hard to get the parts. But every, you know, the only parts you could get were the real parts or parts that you built yourself. Mm -hmm. And so from that point on, you know, I think it just grew and the look grew. And um, were, were there any? Was there a framework for the cars? Did you have a definition of what they had to be? Yeah, it was. It was a little bit loose. We sort of said, 
you know, we're only going to have enough rules so the whole thing doesn't fall apart. And and um, so you're and, limited to 300 guys too. Yeah. Why? That, well, that was that was only way later once it started to grow and it started growing internationally. And everybody and, wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. And and we had some great honorary members. I mean, Bruce is an honorary member, and I think between Bruce and Bruce, you guys fought over a uh, number 935 versus 962, <laughs> right? Member and then, number. And then they had to trade. Oh, God. You know, so and we've got That's some hilarious. amazing people. I mean, it's really about the people. It's about the groups. It's about the cars. And we said there were three elements that, that made up an R group of car. And the first part was Porsche Sports Purpose. It had to sort of fulfill that that like the catalog, you know, which was this tried and true, uh, you know, mechanical specification. It was not it wasn't like hot rods going into custom cars. This was real hot rodding. These guys drove on the track. They were parts of other groups, uh, you know, uh, you know, and, and they were parts of the S registry or uh, uh, other Porsche groups, or they were racers. Uh, we had Milt Mintner come to that first uh, group, you know, and we asked him, what number do you want? And he goes, I want my race number, zero, zero. <laughs> so, and then we decided that uh, that was one part. The next part was SoCal Hot Rod. You know, if it looked right, it was right. And, and we really, I'll be honest, you know, it, it gets into real subjective territory here because a lot of times when we do the GT award, it's, it's Chris and myself and we might add a guest in there as we walk through the crowd and we're not into replicating uh, a, a car. We really want originals. We want original thinking. And, and a lot, that's why you have a car like Raleigh Riso's 66, you know, that every panel on the car is a different color and it becomes an icon on its own. And, uh, and so, and then of course there's Chris's car. You know, Chris had half of his underbody scraped away because he wanted to take more weight out of the car, but he never finished it. You know, so. <clears throat> there were, there were a couple members before I move on. There were a couple members you wanted to mention. Yeah, that was, uh, Roger Grego and, uh, Tony, yeah. right, and uh, and so, Every, oh, if you're our group member, raise your, raise your hand. Hands. There you go. I'm, yeah, you're, here. you're not yeah. in our group. And I tell you, you know, and and Roger, <laughs> Roger was, uh, you know, part of the uh, uh, VW Hot Rod group, which was uh, their Kleiner Panzer. So, and you know, part of the group is this really humble approach. I, you know, it, it's it's part of you know, I worked at Porsche for about seven years, and one of the things I can tell you about the people that worked in Visac were that you knew their names, but you didn't, they, they didn't scream who they were. They, they really, the, their developments were legendary, but the people were human. They were just regular people coming in and, and just having this amazing opportunity. Roger was one of those guys. Roger was a guy that I remember first seeing his, his Aubergine 911, and, and it was a look. That I remember before I even met Roger, it was it was something you said that's inspiring, that's amazing, you know, and and it was an original, and uh, so and I think that we continue to be surprised today, and I think this whole outlaw culture has sort of gone like you were saying, Spike, has gone past the you know preservation versus the modification. It really sort of follows the the American hot rod where they become originals to themselves. And, um, and life is short, you know, build what you want. That's a good jumping off point. Patrick Long, who, um, Patrick, um, 
I remember this conversation I had with you long ago when you were doing, just starting Loop to Cult, where, you know, it, you know, and I want to say congratulations for reinventing the car show because you've made it such a wonderful experience for a new generation of people. I'm seeing women at car shows now, which I have not seen before. But you said, I, I want to do a show that's inclusive, that can have a million dollar car right next to a car a guy built in the garage and nobody's going to be walking around judging or saying a screw isn't turned the right way. And I'm so impressed that you pulled it off. And, and the next one's coming up in a couple of weeks, right? Where's that going to be? Uh, it's April 22nd in Torrance. Right. And, and you guys uh, uh, built a car. A few of you built a car that was an outlaw car. It was a safari car. It, it, tell me why you did that and what that car was about. And, and by the way, explain this safari thing to me. <laughs> what is yeah. the deal with safari cars? Um, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> um, the idea um, behind Luftgekult was sort of the same idea behind building a car. Um, it was to sort of disrupt and uh, shake up your thinking. Um, safaris uh, is not a new element with Porsche's history and what they've done in the East African Safari. Obviously, Rally, mm -hmm. um, Pikes Peak, uh, many different applications on 9-11 had really exceeded uh, expectations off-road. And uh, it really comes back to what we're talking about today, which is Southern California meets Stuttgart. If you drive around Southern California, your car better be able to take potholes. It better right. be able to go over a median. It mm -hmm. better be able to sit a little higher because you probably have an F-150 up your rear. And so um, we wanted a, a car that would kind of tell the story of Luftgekult disrupting uh, what the, maybe the regular thought process might have been pushed onto us. And um, I'm not a car builder. I couldn't you know, hold the flashlight for a lot of guys that are up on this stage. But I do have their phone numbers. So... Um, <laughs> I could I could spiral off into story after story, but Rod, but Tim, um, many of the people up here, um, you know, I met long before I ever owned an air-cooled Porsche at the racetrack. Um, the last 15 years of my life has been centered around working for Vysok and going where they tell me, and I was able to meet these characters through racing. And what I started to understand was is that the people who worked in racing on the weekends worked during the week owning their own shop or, or customizing cars. And there was this really, really close network between modern Porsche racing, America Le Mans, IMSA, Daytona Le Mans, you name it, and some of the legends in the modification of the Southern California culture. So I just decided that if we were gonna commission this car, everybody was gonna have to throw in. It was gonna be for charity. And why not make it something fun and something uh, that, a little different? Now, when you when you build a car, you must build a car because I know you're working on a couple things right now. You must build it from a driver's point of view. You know, for for those of us out there who may want to embark uh, on this path, what what do you look for as a driver in an outlaw Porsche? Um, I want something that's practical, um, versatile, um, but really uh, ignites the senses. Um, for me, when I'm driving a car, I can't see it from the outside. So I sort of, the thought process is building it from the driver's seat out. Right. Um, and so a lot of the projects that I've been involved with are pretty plain to the naked eye. The first safari car that we built was just pure white. I wanted it to look like it rolled off the uh, assembly line in Zuffenhausen. And um, the, the aspects of, of weight, um, high revving engine, all the principles that Porsche built their company on are the things that as a driver you really want. You want a car that the brakes are going to last for 24 hours. You want a car that the tires are going to be there at the end of an hour stint. And maybe three, 4,000 hours I've spent um, in a Porsche race car on a racetrack 
in my office. So I don't need a car that's super stiff or really a race car for the street. I sort of have old blood with inside of me, but there is that time when somebody kind of comes up behind you and thinks they've got you covered and you, you always want a little bit racing. more. There you go. Do you see, and I, and I know you don't speak for the factory, but do you, are, are we at a point now with the 911R just coming out that the factory is suddenly listening to you guys and going, hey, look what, look what Rod Emery just did with that car. You, you know what I mean? Do you hear talk like that when you're back there, that, that maybe some of this stuff will be incorporated into the new stuff? Uh, no comment. Um, yeah, it's it's upon us. I mean, of course, we know about the air-cooled movement. We know about the lightweight modification. We see celebrations and recognition of, of the 911T, of the 911R. And um, a lot of that, as everybody's talking about, was born um, in Southern California right. on, on that aspect of um, you know what, what we do to our cars here. But, of course, going back again to the principles of, of driving through the Austrian mountains and um, you know what the Porsche family was engineering and designing, even before Porsche was a car company, as designers for other car companies, race cars, street cars, um, that, that principle lives with inside of that intelligent performance of lighter and quicker and more agile. I think that's really what hot-rodding cars is really about. And, and electric soon. And electric cars. Yeah, yeah going they, back more analog. Lot, there's just been some, some talk from Porsche this week about the future of electric cars. Bruce Canepa over there. Who's, uh, were you sleeping, Bruce? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put you to sleep over there. I couldn't see you behind Freeman's head. Um, you, what, I, what I love about your business is you're a guy who's out there racing, but for the longest time you were bringing in these outlaw cars onto your site. And I thought maybe you could provide some perspective on what these cars are valued at what makes them valuable and where they started and where they are right now? Well, I, I, love it. I never really looked at them so much as outlaw cars, but more just cars that were developed to be a lot more fun than just a perfect stock original car. And, you know, I think there's obviously a respect for the original cars, but I think if you look at Porsche, especially as a company, every time they develop a new car, from year to year, it's to make it better. Better in terms of utility, better in terms of speed, handling, braking, you know, all levels of performance. So really, that's what these cars are. They're just kind of the next generation of that done by independent people with lots of different great ideas. Do, and um, Do you find that these cars are easier to sell now than they were maybe, say, 10 years ago? Uh, absolutely. In fact, we see a lot of them selling for considerably more money than an original stock car does. And of course, for a lot of guys, the investment to build them that way was more also. But there's um, there's a real thirst for a car that you get in and it's you know it can blow the doors off a Prius. <laughs> That's anything, Bruce. Which is a, real, a, a rickshaw could blow the doors off a Prius. Yeah, but you know the reality is all those Priuses are going 80 miles an hour down the freeway, and they get to use that other lane. So, mm -hmm. so you, right. in the Porsche, you have to use all the other lanes from left to right to keep up with it. So you need a car that handles really good to do that. But no, the reality is, you know, modern cars are all fast. I mean, everything you buy now has a lot of performance, handles well. I've never seen so many cars that are incredible to drive as we see today. And, you know, these old cars would be just old cars if you didn't do these things to them. So whether it's a 356 or an early 911 or even what we do now with 959s, I mean, we're bringing these cars up to modern standards, which makes them fun to drive. And it's, and like Patrick said, it's when you're in the car, you're not standing outside looking at it. You're absolutely part of everything it's capable of doing. 
and it, it gets to test you at the same time, which is really fun. I was going to ask you about those 959s. The um, t- go into a little more detail about what you're doing with those cars because you're, you're you're using traditional Porsche colors, right? What are you doing to the engines? Well, so what we you know over the years we've been developing that car since '87 um, when we first brought those cars to this country, and and we first had to deal with emissions. And in the course of dealing with emissions, we learned that if you were going to make an emissions legal, it would lose 100 horsepower. And by the time we got the law passed to make them to where we could drive them at all, they were 10 years old. So the reality was that there were lots of cars that had 450 horsepower by the late 90s, or, and, uh, um, and that's when the bill was passed. So we were looking to improve on that based on other cars that you could buy, and we've continued to do that. And now we're at a point, the car is 30 years old, which is hard to believe, but it's 30 years old. So we're finding that the cars are timed out, you know, that the HVAC systems are kind of falling apart and hoses and some of the wiring stuff and insulation and, and a lot of them, the, they, it's the one supercar that Porsche built that is driven a lot. When they built it, you know, we see lots of them with 30, 40, 50, 60,000 miles on them. And normally, if you had a Ferrari supercar, it has 500 miles on it. So, so it's a car that people found was comfortable, was extremely fast, handled in the rain as good as it does on the dry, which, which people don't like to ride in when I do that, but it does. It's amazing in the rain, that car. Wow. And, um, you know, it's an all-wheel drive car. It's got great visibility. It's got almost zero fatigue after half a day or a whole day driving it. And of course, it's a 911. I tell guys, it's still a 911 if you really look underneath all of it. So now we've seen, you know, these car people say, well, I want you to find me a new 959 or a low, low, low mileage 959. And there's not many of those left. They built 290 cars, and, you know, there's not many that have a couple thousand miles or 5,000 miles or anything. So we're now taking what we call used cars, which if they're in original condition and the paint's tired and the upholstery's tired, we're disassembling them down to a bare tub. And, and every component in the car is restored, rebuilt to brand new. Every finish, every surface. You know, it's shocking. There's 3,500 parts in that car that are zinc-plated gold. 3,500. Nuts, bolts, washers, wow. brackets. The, the plating guy had a fit when we first showed up with the first car. And, and I said, you have to keep all these separated in these bags and all this stuff. So... So, and now, of course, we've been developing this car, so our latest version is making 802 horsepower and, and 650 foot-pounds of torque on pump gas, a 91-octane fuel. Oh, and, and, you know, this is a 2.88-liter motor. We're not making it bigger. We're not really adding much more boost in it. It's, it was pretty much at the limit of boost. This is modern technology. This is engine management systems and new turbos, and we did change the cam profile and intake stuff and injectors and you know, all those kinds of things, which is why all modern cars fast. They're really still compressors with a lot of modern technology on them. So we've done that with the car. And the nice thing was Porsche had told us at Weissach a long time ago, it was a 800 horsepower platform. It was a Group B car designed for 800 horse. So we're not having failures in, in the braking systems or the, or the all-wheel drive systems or the transmissions or anything. Everything else is fine up to the task. And, wow. You know, and of course they one parried the car and they ran the car at Le Mans. So it was developed to be a race car. So with this, we're now doing color changes. we doing Porsche to sample kind of colors. We, we did the emerald green one with probably everybody's seen by now that was at Lufted last year. And we've just done a navy blue one with red and a tangerine orange one with tobacco brown and a liquid silver one's getting done with 
with dark green leather. And we're doing, we're just taking all of Porsche's great sample colors and offering those to customers. And we're basically building these cars brand new. And, and it is still probably the most drivable modern supercar in the world. Yeah, you know, it's that's the the Pappas car, right? It yes, set a new yeah. La- Tim's car, yeah. Yeah, it set a new land speed record yeah. at Scottsdale in January. He did. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and, he blew, and he blew off a Ferrari doing Ferrari it. Ferrari F12, right. Couldn't keep up with him. Um, Betham, is, uh, you guys are, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're primarily known as engine builders, right? And, and, and preparing cars for motorsport. Yeah. Um, Kind of, yeah. Engines is a passion. We do uh, full vehicle builds, um, kind of taking a page out of everybody in this room's book with modifying cars, except we modify the new ones. Um, and are you mostly working with people on the racetrack or guys who want uh, road cars? You know, when BBI first started, it was primarily race cars. That's where I met Pat Long and Rod Emery. Was I met Pat at Le Mans and Rod at Daytona when I used to work for Porsche. And I actually wanted to back it up. Um, what started my obsession with with Porsche was a 959 was uh Bill Gates car in Bellevue Washington I was I know there's no offense to the panel this dates you guys except for Pat but I was eight years old and I watched this, this 959 go by with my cousin and we both jumped up and down ran in the house you know looked up the pictures in the magazine and said that was really one of those things and we've heard about this car and ever since then I was absolutely obsessed with Porsche and uh it, it was funny I, I, that when I tell that story, I get goosebumps. It burned that big of a memory. And then, so we fast forward, I, I started working for Porsche. Um, and e- even before that, uh, with the R group, I met Randy Wells. And um, he he used to bring his car to service at a shop that I was sweeping the floors for. And there's another guy in this room, Jeff Zwart. In that shop, there was a poster in the restroom, no, no offense, but it, it, had his, it had his 993 sliding up Pike's Peak, and he signed the poster, and it said, I, I want to remember, it said four times champion, and then under the signature, he exited out and said five time. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and at that point, I started really looking at these cars as how capable are they, and that touches on what Patrick was saying with the, the Safari car, why not? The cars right. are unbelievably capable, and, and I start looking at the cars as a canvas, as as you could do anything with them. You know? and, so, and tell us about this 1,500 horsepower motor. What, so, what in God's name is that used for? Uh, yeah, Who so, is doing that, and for what purpose, and is there a turbo involved? Yeah, you know, because I thought Bissimoto was the only guy building these monster engines. Yeah, so and, and, built, and wait, you, you say this engine, you deliver it perfectly, you deliver the power to the road perfectly. Yeah, Explain yeah, that um, to me. I'm so the, intrigued. The goal is, the power is one thing, but putting it down and, and doing it in a manner where the, the car, I mean, you have to build the entire car around that package, but I had a crazy customer out of Oklahoma that was a street racer, and he said, I've got a 996 Turbo, I want to beat everybody with these twin turbo Lamborghinis, and I, I said, okay, so I like the high revving GT3 engine, and I like the, the power of a turbo, we combined those two with a lot of other things that Bruce was talking about, technology, and injectors and and I mean the fuel line going to it is about is bigger than your garden hose and we run it on alcohol and it uh it spins to 9300 rpms and to the tires or well, we had the dyno that bolts to the wheels that was making 1540 horsepower at wow. 8600 rpms and I'm not even kidding you in second gear you could put the power down and and, and you know so he uses it for uh airstrip events and what we use it for is is learning more about the Metzger and we, we learned a lot about 
breaking Metzger's. And so, uh, you know, bending wrist pins, twisting cases. Um, you know, one thing that's never failed on that is a crankshaft. I have always used the OEM crankshaft and never messed with it, never changed the oiling, never any of that. So um, it, it just goes back and proves how overbuilt these cars are. And uh, that's it's pretty incredible. Thank you. Um, uh, I want to get to Marco, and then we're going to ask, uh, you guys can ask some questions because you have a big resource here if you're building something of your own. But Marco, when you sent me, I asked for a little information from everybody, and Marco sent me a very interesting email. He, he learned to drive on a 1969 911 softy with a 2.8 liter RSR motor. That was the car he learned to drive on. And he built uh, at 16 a 73 914.6 hot rod conversion with a 2.4 S motor, 911 motor, beautiful, um, that he drove to prom and delivered pizza in. <laughs> Marco Girassi from TLD, what, you know, give, give us a state of the market about what, what your shop does and what people are coming in these days and asking for, the common, the common uh, modifications. Well, uh, unlike other, unlike uh, Rod or Bruce or Batim uh, or Dave even, um, we're primarily a service shop. My dad opened the place in 78 and I grew up in the building sweeping floors, washing parts, um, you know, just working away, um, going to car shows with my stuff uh, and learning how to fix these things. And people these days compared to as I was growing up, um, they want them to just run and enjoy the drive. They want them to start every time. They want them to go from here to New York and back again. They want to be able to enjoy the cars for what they are, all cars, from the 50s all the way up to 2018. And you know, then I have the other clients who just want to go fast. And you build them a 2.8 twin plug or a 3.2 twin plug or you know, turbo motor or what, what have you. And I, uh, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say kind of how I fit into this. I, I grew up doing this. I built that 914. I joined the R group as a 914 owner, which was like unheard of um, <laughs> because it was 911 only way back then. Um, my dad and I uh, were a team, you know, and yeah. I learned hot rodding from him. Um, Dan, who's floating around here with the camera, he and I went to high school together and on Friday nights we'd go to the cruiser's car wash and we'd look at all the hot rods and the muscle cars and, you know, I would bring my 72 van with a 2.7 motor in it, you know, and he'd bring his 68 fastback. And so I grew up around the hot rod scene. Um, and as I got older, I learned that hot rodding Porsches was what I wanted to do. Um, I, I don't know. We're, we're more of a service-based business and we keep them running, build motors. And, and I enjoy building cars with original parts. Uh, I've spent a lot of my life sourcing and searching for the really hard to find 911R wheels and, you know, 906 cams and you know slide valve fuel injection and high butterfly and, and where do you where do you find that stuff yep because <laughs> <laughs> i noticed it's not on ebay anymore no it's, it's not, not on the back anymore. of hemmings it, anymore it's 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 not uh what you know it's who you know um, by the by the way you just to to, to as an example a uh, symbol of your commitment you've got to show your tattoo Oh, oh, the wrench? Oh, there you go. Look at that. And by the way, that's metric, I assume. Oh, yeah, 13-millimeter Sawley wrench. Um, yeah. yeah, back here. Well, I have Porsche crest on the back, too. Uh, but anyway, um, so, you know, I, I pride myself on using original parts and building these cars the way they were built originally um, because I want that driving experience. I want that, that feel, that smell 
you know, that oily smell, that fuel smell, and, and you know, it's not about being the fastest. It's about enjoying the drive and really getting that time warp. You know, it's getting in the way back machine and turning the key and knowing it'll start and knowing it'll run throughout the course of your drive and however you want to use it, whether it be daily, mm -hmm. whether it be at the racetrack or what have you. Um, and it's just something I've been thinking about with the, the whole outlaw thing. I think Porsche really is the ultimate factory outlaw in that look at their racing programs, right? They took a stock body, stock chassis car and they stuffed the biggest motor, the biggest brakes they could in it. You got the RSRs with the big wide wheels and the flares and then you know guys like Bruce who've been racing 935s. The 935 is the ultimate outlaw car and I grew up watching these things and wanting them and so now that I'm in this position I can give that love and that vibe to my clients and to the people who love and want that thing, that, that emotion. There you go. So that's you know, where I come All right, what ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to open it up to questions. If there's something we didn't cover, I can hear you there. I'll just repeat the question. Go ahead. <laughs> just actually, repeat, actually, just repeat the question is, so the listeners can hear it. Yeah, so the question is what I'm willing to do or not to do in the cars that I build. Um, you know, for me, um, you know, I grew up in a Porsche parts business. My dad was in the Porsche parts business, had Gary Emery. He, had, he started Porsche Parts Obsolete, which was really all of Porsche's distributor obsolescence, the stuff that they had no, they didn't have any room for in the parts departments, was all sent back to a warehouse. And my dad and his boss, Chick Iverson, bought all the overstock. And so growing up as a kid, my playground was uh, a big parts warehouse. And so if you look at the cars that I build, there aren't parts on it from Summit Racing or Napa Auto Parts. It's all Porsche parts. And so for me, it's all about using every possible Porsche part I can, but no limit in the year or model of car. So I'm not afraid to take 964 chassis and running gear and you know merge it with a 356. The engine that we build is two-thirds of a 911. It's all factory parts inside. And so uh, to answer your question, I, you know, I do have certain limits as to, the, to what I'll do to cars. It, it just has to be something that Porsche would have done if they could have back in the 50s and 60s to a 356 if they uh, you know, had access to their parts in the future. You? And a hand in the front there, yes. This is a two-part question. <laughs> Dave Buzogli, you built uh, the original Rob Dickinson car that they... I guess you could call it Singer Zero. Singer Zero, Zero, okay. Zero, right. Uh, Rob came to me with a uh, dream, a vision. And he says, I've got this 69-911, and it was mildly hot-rodded by a gentleman up in the Ventura area, and he wanted to personalize it. He had a very, very, very specific set of specs that he wanted to employ on the car. So this is a little rough patch at first going back and forth uh, because he had very high expectations and it wasn't so easily met, especially on the budget that uh, he had. <laughs> so anyway, 
we worked through it quite well. We became good friends um, over the project. Uh, it turned into just a really nice, fun car. He stuffed uh, really large wheels underneath the standard of body as possible. He stretched the tires out over the rims. He was all about the stance, the stance, the stance, the stance. It had to sit a certain way, and he expected the performance to go with it. So we worked with him on the suspension as well. Uh, worked with a friend of ours, Kevin Menser, on the bodywork and paint. Got that together for him. And it was a lot of fun. He uh, showed up, he, he participated in a lot of our group events at first before he embarked with the actual Singer manufacturing. So uh, that car has always been his inspiration. He still has it. He's done a light restoration to it since. And uh, it's great. It's, it's, we're really proud to be part of it. And you get it 10% of every singer sold? That's right. Is that how that worked? And what was your second question? Here, they have a microphone there that you yeah. can just you can so, ask right um, into there. Yeah, a lot of you probably haven't seen what the, the new roof car is. But uh, uh, if you'll Google uh, roof SCR and, and the new CTR, um, basically, I've, I've known Alois Roof for about 16 years. I've gotten to know him really well. Um, and so I've, I've taken a lot of trips over to Germany and uh, behind the scenes uh, been strategizing and helping him with, you know, what to do in the future. And um, about 12 years ago, we sat in a hotel room in New York City and I sketched out a, a full strategy for him, you know, it, it, because Alois Roof is really probably for Europe, the original outlaw of, of uh, the 9-11 and really 1987 you know when he showed up with uh, uh, at the Volkswagen test track uh, with his original CTR um, against the 959 against all of the greats from Ford I mean from um, from Europe um, and Callaway and all the all the others and that car did 211 uh, and consistently with Paul Freer and Phil Hill and uh, I just got back on Friday night from, from uh, being at Roof, and, um, and he has this videotape that we were actually with some of the uh, writers from Road and Track in his living room watching this videotape from 1987 that was uh, filmed by Richard Barron, uh, who was the art director for Road and Track. And it's a, it, it's a complete, you know, off of his own video camera, and it lasts for about an hour. And... History is made, being made right there because kind of like, uh, you know, as a, you know, the ultimate outlaw is performance. And, and that car was amazing. And so he created, um, you know, pop culture right there. He had this car. He had this brand. He had, uh, and from that point on, there was no really going back. And so about 12 years ago, we started to strategize you know, we talk about using the Porsche parts, and we started looking at that. And I worked at Porsche for seven years in Vizac. And part of the, the thing is that th this stuff gets under your skin, starting off growing up next to Jeff. How could you not, you know, get into this? And the thing is, though, that you start thinking this way. And if you had a clean sheet of paper, what would you do? I mean, I was fortunate enough to work on 959 as a designer during the 80s. I worked with Helmut Bott, you know, and, and you learn. You learn from the way these guys think, the way they move forward. And what Alois wanted to do was he said, I don't want to change the length of this car. I don't want to change this magic cockpit. Um, 
the, the, the cockpit, when you talk to his test driver, Stefan Roser, the guy that is driving the Yellowbird on the Nürburgring, in the green hell, um, and you talk to him, what is it about this cockpit? He says, it's the A-pillars. Those A-pillars have got to be where they are because the new cars put their A-pillars further forward and you can't see in the corners. And you want to be in the corner with, with your, your visibility. And so we decided from the get-go that we would take this cockpit. That's the part. And then, and then he gave, we started doing a couple mock-ups. We started tearing up some cars and, and just, you know, putting the wheels where they should go without changing the length. That meant new gearbox from ZF. That meant, you know, a new seven-speed gearbox. Uh, that's more compact dimensions. Uh, we, we looked at the 935, the way that the, the axles were pushed up into the body. So we did that. And we pushed the wheelbase out. We pushed it out to 997 wheelbase. So the front overhang became 20 less, rear 50 less. Um, and then tire ODs got bigger. The width of the car is wider than the 959. Uh, the, we pushed the door sections. We didn't change the glass house, but we pushed the door sections out 30 millimeters aside. It's like the car went to the gym. And it's amazing. And to me, the testament of all of this was I just got back. We went to the Geneva Auto Show just a couple weeks ago. We drove the prototype there through the snow, through the rain, uh, getting up to speeds close to 300 Ks on the Autobahn uh, in the rain. Um, and and it, it's a full carbon tub, full carbon body, pushing the envelope of all of this to the next level of what is original. There's not one. The, the only thing that's left is that Metzger block. And, and pretty soon, that'll go to the next level because he's come to, just like we were talking about on the panel, you were figuring that out. And so and it's all push rod suspension. It's, it's analog, manual gearbox. No, the only electronic aids are traction control and ABS and great aerodynamics. But to me, this is pushing the envelope. And I love that just as, you know, I listen to uh, all of the people up on the panel, and I look at the people in the audience that have done some pretty pioneering stuff. The the future, as com and coming out of you know, I've been 35 years working for uh, the auto industry, knowing what their limits are. I really think that this outlaw thing is going to only get bigger. You know, it's because it's kind of becoming the niche. We're getting into electrification. We're getting into all the stuff that driver aids. It's really the outlaw way. You know, we want to drive this stuff ourselves. Oh, by the way, the car is 1,250 kilos. That's, that's pretty light when you start to look at it. So, um, I don't know. Sam, did I answer your question? Yeah, the R group gets kicked out of a lot of places. <laughs> you have a question? Sure, go ahead. I'll just do it from here. Go ahead. You can just say it. We can hear you. Um, extremely interesting. Thank you very much. A question to anybody in the panel about Gunther Works and how would that compare to the Singer cars? So the Gunther Works cars, how do they compare to the Singer cars? Anybody, whoever wants to, go ahead. Marco, you seem to have an opinion. Uh, I mean, well, I, I think, I think they, they're, they're very similar ideas on two separate platforms. Um, 
you know, at first, you know, uh, I maybe wasn't sold on either one. Uh, but as you watch... Uh, the Gunther works, they're 993s? The Gunther works and, is and a 993 chassis, where okay. the Singers use 964 Six, four, chassis. Right. Okay, so, so I think that the Gunther works saw what Singer went through developmentally and said, okay, well, thanks for doing the hard work. We're going to try and do it another way. And I, I think they built on each other, mm -hmm. and I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, it's more of a, if I had unlimited funds, what car would I build? And this is, the Gunther Works was the result of that, you know, that approach. Um, I mean, they use amazing motors from uh, Jeff up at Gamroth, you know, Jeff Gamroth and Roth Sport. Um, I know that, you know, E-Motion, uh, Joey Seeley is doing the suspension work. So, I mean, there's a lot of good brains involved in the process. Uh, the car, what, what, do they, what do they cost, the Gunther Work cars? Because uh, the, the Singer cars are now, they're about past half a million dollars. They're about point. the same. Right? They're yeah, as far same. as I know, they're, they're comparable price-wise. I don't, I've never driven. How many cars have they built? I think just one so far. They just have the but one. I believe there are standing orders. I'm not, a, you know, I don't know. But um, I've drove <laughs> some of the early Singer stuff when they were just starting to get things going. And it's, I got to say, it's amazing to see how far they've come. Yeah. I mean, it may not be your cup of tea, but you cannot fault them for what they've done. It's, a, it's brilliant. They brought outlaws and 964s and backdating to the mainstream, you know, and that's, that's good for everybody in here. And, mm -hmm. you know, what's old is new again, right? There you go. So I think that's fantastic. Is that good? I can't. That's not, not to speak to that. I mean... You know, He's asking if the prices are justifiable. I mean, you know, no, of course not. Yeah, I'd love, it. I'd <laughs> but love somebody's going to pay one. <laughs> that is justified. <laughs> Wish I could afford one. What, 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 I, what I meant by that side question is whether somebody like you guys in the panel could you put those cars together as a hot rod, something comparable to those cars for much less money. That's my. That's question. a good question. So could you make something comparable to a Singer car for much less money? I, I might just say that. yes, and yeah. you have a you oh. have a customer right here. <laughs> yes, no, but um, both of those cars, I think they they've taken different approaches, um, it, trying to end up at the same place. They've both done amazing jobs. It, to answer your last question, we're building a 993 currently right now, doing a hot rod car, and um, you know it's rocker mounted suspension. We've taken the uprights from a 997 RSR and built our own control arms to correct all the geometry. It's got brakes from a 991 Cup car, um, the same wheel and tire package from a Grand Am a GTD car from 2015. So we're taking all the other technologies and trying to put it into a package um, and still keep it air-cooled, still keep all this stuff, but it's going to be MoTeC injected. The turn signals will turn off when you turn the wheel based on a potentiometer on the wheel. So there's a lot of fun things that you can do that you, let's say the whole spawn of that project was a customer started at, I would like to build an engine. And then, oh, what can we do? I, I was on the list for a singer, which thank goodness, because his budget opened up quite a bit when he looked at what that cost. But it, um, it's, it, 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 I think those two vehicles have left us, left the imagination open now. And now we're able to almost use those budgets as kind of a, Hey, you know what? This is what you get here. What? Where do you want to go with it? And now, with technology of 3D scanning, and we, we're doing a lot of 3D printing with metals and uh, wild exotic materials, and you know the inside of a control arm looks like the the bone inside your arm. I mean, there's a lot of neat things that 
we're able to bring technology-wise because, and I hate, I hate to say it, but the budgets are allowing that. And, um, and people want what they want. If they don't want to check the box, they want to make their own menu. I want this, and I want, as uh, Freeman was saying, I want the greenhouse to remain. Uh, and then make everything else work well. So That's where the money is. Right? I, I, have, I just want to add one thing that people don't tend to think about is serviceability, right? That's what I've always been brought up to, to focus on is can these cars be serviced? What happens if you break down in the middle of Texas, right? <laughs> so, so the approach that we have always taken, a lot of the guys on here is, you know, like Rod, for example, we build with original parts. You know, you, you can go into any dealership, and especially now with the classic programs, a lot of these old parts are now available. So you could drive your car from here to New York and should you break down in BFE, you're gonna be able to go to a dealership and find a clutch cable or an accelerator cable or a gasket or what have you. you know, and when you get into these Wazoo Singers and Gunther Works cars, you know, the problem is there's one of them. And they're not necessarily very serviceable without sending the car back to where it was built. And you know, maybe that's part of the program that they've designed, but for a lot of people, that's not an option. So when I say I, I focus on using original parts and building that way back machine, a part of it is so that it remains a usable vehicle all the time like Porsche had intended. There you go. We have time for one more I question. Went, I want to make a oh, quick ahead, comment, please. if I might. Um, first of all, I want to thank everybody for being here today. And we've done these panels in the past. We did one with Jay Leno and Donald Osborne and the head of head of uh, RM and David Gooding, and we sat around what's hot and what's not. And after a, about an hour and a half or two hour conversation, it came down to one word, Porsche. That is, <laughs> that is the future and the present, and for me, the past. But I look across the people that are here in this room, which, which represents every demographic and every age group, and it really speaks volumes as to you know, what's, what's trending, and it's Porsche. But I also want to thank Dan Kahn, the gentleman down here with the There he is blue. over there in the corner. Dan put this together. He did a great job. Yeah. Dan is on the board of our Checkered Flag 200. Um, our, we are breaking every attendance record. We're going to have over 500,000 people through the museum this year. And it's a great effort and, and a great tribute to Dan's public relations. And you've got Terry Cargus, who represents the older generation. And right <laughs> next to him, to our, our executive director, our deputy executive director, Michael Bodell, who is in his 20s and wiser than anybody I've ever met. And so the two of them are the, are the genius behind the museum. And we're just so happy that everybody's here enjoying the place like it should, have, like it should be. And I want to thank the panelists so much for giving up your Sunday and, and for being here and everybody in this room. So um, be sure to enjoy the Porsche effect. And, and one other, I just have to, you know, mention one thing. As, as, as uh, Terry knows and Michael knows, when Wolfgang Porsche, they did their corporate board meeting here when they opened the Experience Center. And so I just happened to be here that day in a coat and tie, which is like maybe it's happened twice since we opened. And I ran into Wolfgang Porsche. We just became best friends. And we walked through here. We had the Bugatti exhibit. I said, we can celebrate your anniversary, your 70th anniversary, right here in the Peterson Museum. We hit it off famously. He's my new best friend. We're honoring him on the 5th, so be sure and candle that, uh, calendar that. But when, when we put it all together... We, it was our, our exhibit team, our great museum team here, and they came up with the name Porsche Effect. And I had this idea of Porsche's 70th, 
you know, the pursuit of excellence. And I just, I, you know, I thought, where did they come up with this name Porsche Effect? So I came in here. I said, we got we to rename this thing. So I sat down with Michael and, and, and Brian, and they explained to me the Porsche Effect, which now I just, it's like branded, and it, it represents everything in here. There, the, the effect on hot rodding, the effect on design, one of the few marks that have kept their, their profile, you know, very similar. It's very obvious whether it's, and, and they're designing watches and architecture. The Porsches had such an enormous effect on everybody in this room. So I, I congratulate you all for coming up with the great name Porsche Effect. And we just hope that everybody has enjoyed the exhibit. And again, thanks so much. And, yeah. to, and to you, Spike. You're welcome. Thank you so much. And on that note, and don't forget a tremendous Guy Allen poster. That, the, the poster art for Porsche Effect was incredible. How about a round of applause for these guys? Thank you so much, panel. Thank you for spending $25 to come see us talk. See you next time. Real quick before we go, here's some useful car tips you might not be aware of. A coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage, and you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. That's pretty weird, right? Well, here's another tip you also might not know about. TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right. TrueCar isn't just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid so they know if they're getting a good deal before they're buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Thanks for listening to Spike's Car Radio. Download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. New to Podcast One, The Producer's Guide with Todd Garner. Join Todd as he interviews the biggest names in Hollywood, like Adam Sandler. We drove down there and my brother's like, do you have your material? I said, what do you mean? Rebel Wilson. I couldn't interact with these people, so I put on this American accent and <laughs> pretended to be American. And Isla Fisher. I just wrote a passionate letter explaining how much I wanted to be a clown, begging them to accept me. Download new episodes of The Producer's Guide with Todd Garner every Thursday on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or Apple Podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.